The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. You've got to sit on your hands while... Do you? Yeah. Well, actually, no, it didn't happen at mine, but some people have told me that they were asked to sit on their hands while the, th- the probe went up their nose. And okay. We, our, our audience should be sitting on their hands while political commentary and analysis is just shoved deep into their brain mm. by the swab of gone by lunchtime. Tato, this has gone by lunchtime. It is July the 28th, middle of the morning, 10-something, relatively calm waters of New Zealand politics. My name is Toby Manheim. I'm the editor of The Spin-Off. With me, Annabelle Lee Mathos, the executive producer of The Hui. Kia ora, and happy birthday to my son, Moke, who is 19 today. Happy birthday, Moke. Ben Thomas is also with us. Um, welcome, Ben. You are, a f- what are you? A freelance public relations consultant. Radio New Zealand have started calling me an independent public relations consultant. Oh, yes. In order to make clear yes. that I don't work for the National Party, my former colleague Matthew Hooten, uh, or, any of, or any of the other bogeymen. Are you working for any um, political parties in this election? I'm not working for any political parties. You in this did election. do a little bit of work in one of their former elections for the ACT Party. 2017. Since what a time. you stopped working for them, they seem to have become popular. They, <laughs> they've just gone from strength to strength. Um, <laughs> um, so, anyway, Ben's. Available for all of your uh, local mum and dad PR consultancy work. A big shout out to Flick Electric, who sponsor this podcast, and also a word for spin-off members, uh, which is uh, what enables the good ship spin-off to stay afloat through the stormy waters of the crisis in journalism. What are we going to talk about today? We'll start with the subject on everyone's lips, which is the big poll that came out on Sunday evening, News Hub. It was um, described by the political editor Tova O'Brien as throwing a bazooka into the politics. Do you throw a bazooka or shoot a bazooka? Well, she said throw a bazooka, which Can is interesting. Can you shoot a grenade? I think, no, I think it's it's different because it's like throwing a bazooka in and then New Zealand politics like, who wants to pick up the bazooka and use it, you know? Ah, so yes. I don't think it's that. I think bazookas are just heavy and by throwing it, you're really showing that things oh, are out of control. Not right. even loaded. You know, just, like, I mean, any, 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 any person who defects to the Middle East to join a terrorist organisation can hold a bazooka. But, mm. you know, if, if you're the kind of guy who's, like, throwing a bazooka at people, mm. you know, mm. you mean business. Mm. Yeah. That's, yeah. Throwing it at your enemies and daring them to pick it up and shoot you with it. Um, 
inked in Twink on aforesaid bazooka were the numbers 60.9% for the Labour Party, 25.1% for the National Party, 5.7% for the Green Party, 2 point nothing for the New Zealand First Party and the ACT Party, now that they are unshackled from the PR advice from Ben Thomas, at <laughs> 3.3%. <laughs> um, uh, and probably popular with the um, bazooka-loving <laughs> ordinary New Zealanders. This, 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 is a, this is essentially a metaphor for all of my exes. <laughs> <laughs> um, ben, you wrote about this poll for the spin-off uh, almost as soon as it came out on the, on, on, on Sunday evening. What's, what's your read on this? I mean, it is... The hyperbole is real, isn't it? It's a it's a pretty extraordinary, devastating result for national. Yeah, it's the second time that Labour has gone over sixty percent in this term in in that news hub poll. Uh, oh no, actually the first Don't time was so. Colmar Brunton. So yeah. so it's gone over sixty percent in two polls, which you know it's extraordinarily high. Um, that has happened before uh, under MMP. Uh, I think. Um, no, she's Twice, 60. I think. There was yeah. Bolger did it once and maybe Clark once. I don't think Key ever got over 60, did he? But, um, yeah, and where this is different from other collapses by uh, opposition parties, you know, or major opposition parties, so we're talking about uh, Labour under Andrew Little before Jacinda Ardern came on board, we're talking Bill English in the 2002 election. In those cases... The support from the large opposition party uh, streamed off into minor parties. So you had very good election results for New Zealand First, for ACT, for the Greens. Um, and in 2014, you know, New Zealand First and the Greens were both polling in the double digits while Labour was, was you know, in chaos. Here, it's all gone to the governing party. You know, the gap between uh, Labour plus the Greens and, if you were being generous, New Zealand first uh, versus National Plus Act is just enormous. Um, and w- what's happened is that those those wavering, soft sort of centre voters going actually quite deep into National Party territory are now with the government you know, won over presumably by the strong pandemic response, uh, slightly shaken by the um, the calamity within National's own ranks over the past few weeks. I think the, the caveat is, you know, National have come out quite strongly saying it's a rogue poll, which I think we can discount. In order for it to be a statistical error, you're talking very, 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 very infinitesimal chances um, that a random result could throw up something that it was that was, you know, that wrong Mm. (laughs) compared to where they're sort of trying to portray themselves at. But a poll is a snapshot in time, and this poll was taken uh, at the point at which Judith Collins had just taken over, which was also the point at which the National Party leader had essentially disappeared. We still haven't heard anything from Todd Muller. He had only been in the job for two months. There was a raft of senior departures, Nikki Kay and Amy Adams. There was uh, the Andrew Falloon sexting, dirty pictures, whatever scandal, which, you know, doesn't portray you in a good light. All the while, National are trying to run this argument about a strong team. 
Uh, and it was before, uh, which we'll get onto soon, Ian Lee's Galloway was sacked as a minister. So it was basically the worst possible window. I don't think it was, I don't think it was entirely. Um, no, I, I, I changed, by, by changed that in your piece. Yeah, because by, it, by pretty, pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, like, towards the end. Do you, and, and, Annabelle, um, uh, very swiftly, um, Collins and then an unusually a press release from Jerry Brownlee, who's both deputy leader and overseeing the National Party campaign, came out with a press release saying this is a rogue poll. Do you think that that uh, carries any weight or does it smell of desperation? And what do you make of these numbers in terms of the extent to which they reflect either confidence in Jacinda Ardern and Labour versus the, what Bill, what um, Ben isn't it? Uh, ben called the calamity in mm. national. I think what it reflects is a perfect storm of a really high performing prime minister and a very poorly performing opposition happening at the same time, which is why the the results seem so extreme. Um, while I do realise that rogue polls are a thing. I don't believe that this is one. Mm. And even if you adjusted it by 10 points, it would still show that Nationals in, in dire straits. Mm. I think um, being so quick to come out and dismiss it as, as a rogue poll um, isn't necessarily a great strategy because I think it shows um, defensiveness, a lack of self-awareness and, you know, uh, um, uh, it, the problem with polls like this is regardless of how correct they are um, they create a narrative and the narrative is that you know nationals sliding more and more mm. down the dirty gulch and Labour's streets ahead so it creates a, a dynamic where nationals always having to defend you know, justify, and that in itself is, you know, just mm. as damaging as if we were able to confirm 100% the absolute accuracy of, uh, of the poll. And that's one of the reasons that Judith Collins has made it clear that she will share the internal polling of the National Party with her caucus today, today being Tuesday. My suggestion, if you're listening uh, immediately, Judith Collins, is that you send all the polling data to the MPs individually and just change one decimal point in one of the parties <laughs> for each of the members and then when Tova publishes it you'll be able to see who's the um, who's the leaker. National have been pretty adamant that their internal polling does have them higher than 25%. They're left in an invidious position. Whenever you get a poll result that's this bad you know, your options are very limited, right? You can either tell the truth and say, this is terrible, but as Annabelle said, you know, these things do have their own momentum. You know, Colmar Brunton has either just finished polling or is currently polling for its, um, its poll. Midweek was, is, is yeah. the talk, yeah. And so that means that the, the disastrous result for National is in the minds of people who are being polled by Colmar Brunton. So mm. these things do have a, a knock-on effect. So you can either concede, yeah, our polling sucks, um, but mm. but no, n nobody would. But actually we're working hard to <laughs> win back the confidence of our yeah, supporters. But, but what people usually go with is a variant on oh, it was a rogue poll. Our internal polling is higher, which 
at which point the internal polling gets leaked and it generally gets shown to be like 2% higher or mm. something. <laughs> what we're hearing on the ground. Yeah, and oh, that's not what I'm hearing in the community. When I'm going door knocking at, <laughs> when, yeah. at university statisticians' houses and when I'm when I'm When canvassing. I lie in bed at night staring at the ceiling and the mould creeping in from the corners and speak <laughs> to my spouse plaintively, what I'm hearing <laughs> is that my party is fine. Yeah, and you know, and and you basically just have to suck up a day or two of looking like a bit of an idiot, and then just carry on as best you can. Um, it speaks to the perhaps the infrequency of political polling in New Zealand, but also the frequency of turnover in the national leadership that we didn't get a news hub read poll at all for the leadership of Muller, did we? For Muller, yeah, no, maybe he was really good. Could have been. We will. We'll never know. <laughs> Um, um, my other um, thought about this is that in, in, in a poll, a Colmar poll about the proximity from the 2017 is almost exactly the same proximity from 2017 election as this one is from the 2020 election. Uh, Labour hit 24%. This one, National hit 25%, um, struggling. And then what happened is there was a swift Hail Mary move to replace mm. the leader with the deputy. And so I'm wondering whether, Annabelle, you think Jerry Brownlee could be the... He, he is the leader could, New could Zealand be the search, has the been Jerry searching search. for. Mm, I think that's highly likely. I mean, the thing is, the leader should reflect the mood of the nation after lockdown, trapped in here, seeing all these high, highfalutin, yeah. think they're better than us, yeah. overseas New Zealanders wanting to come back for free... Maybe the maybe the country is getting a bit grouchy, well, a bit grumpy, a bit of a short right, fuse. Yeah. Maybe Jerry is the man for the times. Relentlessly positive. <laughs> fuck that. What about relentlessly just a bit pissed off with everything? <laughs> yeah. Just a bit fucked off, actually. Um, just, just a little bit annoyed to be here. <laughs> a, a little, a little done with this shit which we've been doing for decades. <laughs> um, but I mean, what? <laughs> You know, that, that, that is an interesting thing, though, because Colmar Brunton did poll during the Muller era. The, 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 the Muller epoch. And, 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 of course, National was on 38% there. So, yeah. you know, quite a comeback. Yeah. Uh, and now, so if you if you look at the drop from thirty eight percent to twenty five percent, you know even more different polls, different methodologies, different polls, different clearly methodologies. a rogue poll. Uh, which one? I don't know. <laughs> I don't, the, the, the rogue <laughs> poll is the one you don't like. I think it should be. Sorry but but, to what it, but, but no, but I th- <laughs> okay, but I think the serious point that it, the serious point that it makes is that once you start getting into down to twenty five percent for national and sixty one percent for labour. You are you are talking about support that is incredibly soft, so it's not as if you know. I did a presentation at the Northern Club with Neil Jones, um, who had, who, had was, who was talking about Labour's polling. You know, when they were at about sort of fifty percent or fifty two percent or whatever, and he was saying, you know, the at risk voters have gone from being teachers and nurses to being middle managers and finance company employees. Well, at 60%, the at-risk Labour voters are tax criminals, the sensible (laughs) sentencing trust, (laughs) and investment bank executives. Um, You know, these are not people who are core Labour voters. And and you can see 
because that Colmar Brunton poll, the 38% one for National, was taken during that, you know, border shambles where the two women had absorbed to Wellington. And and you can see that there is a lot of vote right now, probably a, anything above 45% for Labour, is basically just sort of um, a free radical floating in space, sloshing around based on the news headlines of the day. So, you know, that's the quote-unquote good news for National, is that, you know, voters that it should be able to rely on are currently just sort of floating in space and up for grabs depending on who's looking better or what scandal is in uh, are they? I mean there are, there, are two, there are two other kind of I think interesting data points in this poll um, <clears throat> even if we accept that it's sort of on the you know uh, about as good as Labour might have hoped for um, and one which I think is which is very serious and kind of seals it arguably is that the question that was asked was, which party do you most, most trust to run the economy from now on through and after COVID? That's an economy question. And 62.3% Labour under Jacinda Ardern, 26.5% National under Judith Collins. And that's the kind of backbone of the national brand, isn't it? Like, if, 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 if fully almost two-thirds of people feel that the Labour Party is the party that holds the economic solutions to this crisis, then you kind of wonder where where National can go with this. Again, I think that's a reflection of the culture shift in National, <clears throat> which used to be the party of the New Zealand squirearchy. Um, and as we've seen, that the culture of National, the demographic of National has been replaced. We've seen a number of... Um, poorly performing, um, undisciplined um, MPs. So I think that that is really a vote of no confidence in the in national as it as it appears today. I don't even know if that's necessarily a vote of confidence in Labour. I think that's a punishment of national for, for poor performing MPs. It's, it's also got to be, don't you think, um, a serious mark of commendation for the handling of the COVID crisis. Mm. And th- this is why I feel like um, for, clearly uh, the shambles that we've seen in the National Party is, is, a, is a big deal and feeds into this. But at the same time, part of the reason that they're in that situation is because people's the message that people have been sending in a series of polls, including those that we've we've run for the spin-off about, but with Sticky Beak, just show people think that the right decisions have been made. Mm. They look out at the rest of the world. They look at Victoria. They look at the USA. They look at the UK. And they just go, look, the, I mean, things aren't perfect. And yep, no doubt we've got quite a lot of steroids in our system with the wage subsidy and other measures. But would you swap? You know, and mm. I don't. I just. I mean, the the, it, the the it's hard to imagine a more uphill battle than to be the political opposition to that. Having said all that, there's one other part of the poll that I think maybe offers a small amount of at least hope for Judith Collins, which is to say that you can't pin all of that um, overall result on on Judith Collins. National are at 25 percent, but still. 39.5% of respondents, 40% of people think Collins is performing well. That's so, why I think that it's about know. a vote of no confidence in National itself right. rather than Collins. Right. I, yeah, I don't think <coughs> it's Judith Collins's fault. Um, I think, you know, all of the, I mean, you could say that there's a, a nexus between Muller's leadership ending Collins taking over, the departures of Adams, Kay, 
but the Falloon thing is, uh, you know, it's its own event, kind of out of the blue. Mm. Um, and, you know, Collins didn't cause that. She didn't topple Muller. There was no, you know, she was she was literally handed the hospital pass. In terms of the economy, you know, or the economic handling, I think that's right. The, you know, it, it is hard to sort of point at Labour and say, you know, that they've mishandled it in any way. And in terms of steroids in the economy, sure, we've seen economists uh, this week say, or last week saying, that, uh, you know, the wage subsidy is delaying the inevitable, you know, that there's a bit of a sense that the economy, which is holding up, you know, really well right now, you know, uh, unemployment hasn't hit sort of... Mm. Doing, doing, sort doing of better than... Lo- low, low 7%, yeah. right? Um, and, you know, but there's a feeling from economists that perhaps it's a bit like Wiley Coyote kind of running on air, you know, before he looks down. Um, at the same time, you know, what is an economy? An economy is just people spending money. You know, confidence doesn't really matter where the confidence comes from. If people are spending money, there's velocity of circulation. People are paying other people to do things and, and to make things. You know, that's that's an economy that's running well. So, you know, we can't and, – and in terms of the debt, which was nationals, you know, one of their big planks of attack – well, the government just shelved, you know, $14 billion of that $20 billion that was, you know, allowed to be spent on the COVID response. So they've actually cut off a lot of that criticism as well. So there aren't that many ways through for National right now. You know, they had they had that popular announcement about charging returnees for quarantine, which, you know, Labour is doing anyway. So Labour are doing that very... Um, John Key-esque kind of uh, strategy of triangulation, yeah, of of immediately sort of co-opting and absorbing any policy that the uh, opposition runs that looks popular, and you see it. You know, Judith Collins has been in the news talking about the grant of a refu- of refugee status um, to the the author, um, supported by the Greens. Now, that's that's not a that's not a confident position to be taking going into an election campaign to be talking about one immigration. Yeah, going on decision. magic talk and talking about various bucharias definitely seems like a kind of uh, reeks of desperation to me. Hello there, Simon Pound here from another spin-off podcast with a little bit of cross-promo for you. If you might be into the stories of Aotearoa's most interesting entrepreneurs and innovators, you might like to check out Business is Boring, the podcast I host that reckons it's anything but. Recent episodes have included great guests like Tim Brown from Allbirds, Kitty Nathan from her own label, and Brianne West with the amazing story of Ethic. If that sounds like a bit of you, it's available through the spin-off or wherever you find your favourite podcasts. Let's talk Annabelle about um, something that happened in the second half of last week after the Andrew Falloon situation. Uh, Jacinda Ardern on, I think it was Thursday morning, I may stand corrected, um, called a, a kind of urgent press conference at the Beehive Theatre where she announced that she had dismissed Ian Lee's Galloway. That followed earlier in the morning Judith Collins appearing on the AM show on 3 where she was asked, just so happens she was asked by Duncan Garner, 
whether or not she'd heard anything what about the Labour Party. What a moonshot question. Sure was, Amazing. right? Sometimes in this business, ladies and gentlemen, you just feel it. And you, <laughs> just, you just feel a question. And um, <coughs> it comes Incredible. to you as if, as if out of the very earth itself. Mm. Um, Ian Lee's Galloway was dismissed over, over in a, a relationship which went for about a year, I think, it was now concluded with um, someone who had worked in an agency which came under the purview of his workplace relations um, portfolio and um, Ardern, as she explained, it wasn't appropriate for the Minister of Workplace Relations. He lost all his ministerial warrants and is standing down at the election. There was also, the way it played out, there was a sort of equivalence made drawn between the Falloon situation which involved unsolicited pornographic images being sent to a number of women including one teenager and this consensual affair details of which we don't know do you what did you make of all that did you do, do you think that Ardern was left with any choice in that situation um well, last week I came here and, and talked about what a great job I thought both Judith Collins and Jacinda had done in the handling of um, the Falloon Ferrari. And um, this week I feel absolutely the opposite about how both of them handled the Ian Lee's Galloway issue. And as Ben rightly pointed out on Twitter, um, it's difficult to commentate on a story like this because um, in a couple of hours time what you may have said may m make you look like a total asshole as more information comes to hand <clears throat> but if we are to accept what we know at the moment which is that there wasn't actually a complaint laid by with Judith Collins office that in fact she received a, a tip off from a third party not from um, not from the woman who he allegedly had an affair with, not f not from um, his wife. Um, I, and Ardern, you know, responds by turning around and sacking him. I just think it's one of the most bizarre knee-jerk reactions to, you know, a private matter that I've ever seen in Parliament. And for her to call a press conference about it just seemed like a complete overreaction. And I think um, uh, John Rogan's opinion piece on it and Heather Duplessy Allen's um, piece about um, Judith, uh, Jacinda being snookered by Judith uh, uh, are right on the money. Uh, I'm, um, yeah, it's, it's, and the justification that it's because he's the Minister for Employment Relations seemed a bizarre uh, reason too. And, I mean, if certain portfolios are going to have um, caveats on them, is that the right word? Caveat. Caveat, sorry, caveat. Or a, or a, or a caveats. High, 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 higher, higher level of expectation should, would be another word. Yeah, then, it, then they should be clearly um, 
then, then the public should know that so that we know what to expect. Like if the you're, Minister if you're of the, ACC can't have loose cords that's in right. their office. That's right. <laughs> or Just no power tools so, at all. Slippery yeah. surfaces. <laughs> exactly. It's, so. it's, it's, I mean, it does, it does you know, the... I mean, I, I hadn't heard this rumour. Apparently everyone had about Ian Lees Galloway. But God knows every time you go to Wellington, you hear another story. I mean, uh, you, some of them are true. Some of them are no doubt made up. Like, we, you know, there are various political rumours that one hears lately that are uh, founded on absolute bullshit. Uh, mm, and right. they circulate very quickly. But... Um, there is a difficult area there, isn't there, Ben? You've been around that. You've spent more time in that precinct than we have. And what what are the rules now? Have the rules changed? Is there is it a question of you know? Because maybe this is it. Maybe there is. You need to uh, quietly, privately declare to your political boss if you have a workplace, if you have a relationship with someone. And maybe that's simple as that. I don't know. So I think the first and fundamental point is that MPs having sex is disgusting. Hmm. And should yes. not happen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think we, we can that, all agree okay. on that. Now, once we've worked past that first <coughs> principle, yeah. I don't think that it was out of order for Judith Collins to raise it, and I don't think it was out of order for the Prime Minister to sack Why? Galloway. Why? Why that, is it not out of order for her to raise if someone's having an affair? Well, I wasn't. I wasn't intending to expand on it. No, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was going to get onto that. The 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 reason is that. I know in these post Me Too times, it almost seems quaint the idea that you would discipline somebody. It wasn't somebody a Me Too issue, Ben. No, exactly. She wasn't. Can you wasn't just the let me finish? It wasn't the woman that was complaining. It was some off yeah. office gossip. Yeah, if you had listened to the second bit of the sentence, Go on, then. You, you, we could have. Go on then. So, in the post Me Too environment, it almost seems quaint to sack somebody for a consensual affair where there is no sort of hint that either of the parties in it was victimised, right? But at the same time, and, and, and I also don't buy this argument that there was a power imbalance, that it's impossible for somebody to give informed consent or genuine consent where, you know, a minister of the crown is involved because they're so lofty and Olympian, right? Where it, where it is an issue, if a minister is boning somebody in their agency that they have responsibility for, is that, like any workplace, it can create issues within the organisation. You know, especially, and it's exacerbated, if it's a secret affair. You know, say the, and these are totally hypothetical questions but or examples, but say the person wants some leave so that they can rendezvous with the minister and they ask their chief executive if they can have time off and the chief executive knows what's going on but they can't say anything and then they're put in a difficult position. Do I refuse the leave? Do I... You know, and and so there does become an issue of equal treatment. That's why these relationships in professional organisations have to be uh, declared and managed in a lot of cases. And in some firms, they're just outright not allowed. And if that's if that sort of issue for the culture or for the organisation can create a problem, I, I think. And and I think in this kind of case. You know, it certainly can. You know, this person was working in Galloway's office at some point. They were working in an agency that was under his responsibility as the minister. Um, so particularly the furtiveness around it, you know, can cause real problems. Consent is not, you know, consent is obviously necessary, but it's not sufficient to say that a relationship will always be appropriate in a workplace. Um, and 
and and moving on so so i think that's why it was totally within the prime minister's bounds to sack galloway for that the the with judith collins and how she uh, introduced it into the discourse i don't think it was best practice i think it would have actually been entirely fine for her to ask about it at question time or to Ooh. advance oh, it. It, it's, it's not just that it's, it wasn't best practice. It looked as though it was a kind of a, a, a tribute act to the dirty politics mm. playbook. How, how is it? Di- because, no, it's not well, dirty, no, it is be- not dirty politics if an opposition leader raises an issue about the conduct of a minister. That's just normal politics. That's holding the government feeds it out in the the media, you know. So there wasn't any opportunity really given. I mean, that's the snookering question, right? Yeah. And 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 the other the other thing, and I'm not. This is not what you're saying. I I I accept that. But the the equivalence, I think, with the Falloon situation is that in that case, the the tip off, if you like, came from the parents of one of the victims. Mm. And that was then fed through the channels, which I think is materially different to this mysterious tip-off, which, again, we don't know where it came from, but there is no suggestion that it involved any victim or any whistleblowing per se, so much as, you know, scuttlebutt. We don't know. Also, can you never use the word boning in this context again? It's deeply disturbing. Un- un- unfortunately, no. Traumatised. No, ha- no, look, we have to come to grips with the reality of what's going down on down in Wellington. <laughs> and unfortunately, it is binding. Um, uh, I'd like to apologise um, to everybody for the use of the the, 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 the word. Let's let's um, let's move on, uh, as Helen Clark would say, and uh, talk about something much more wholesome, which is the Green Party and their policy law, their campaign launch, campaign on, launch on Saturday morning. Uh, the um, 52 pages of uh, their sort of vision document. Um, it's kind of interesting to think that uh, before the last election, of course, there were the, the big document was the budget responsibility rules that were put out by the Greens and the Labour Party in tandem. Of course, they don't have one of those anymore because <laughs> one, <of the>, one <laughs> of the parts of it was that if catastrophe strikes, then they tear it up. And there's been no talk about it at all since. But this document is intended as a kind of policy a sort of a sort of a, a rudder, I guess, you know, and it's to help them with uh, any post-election negotiations they get into, and then if are they to make it back into government, it will be a, 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 a touchstone for them. I think. Did you catch any of that? Did it? Are the Greens? Um, you were away on. You were you were having a lovely weekend away, weren't you, um, Annabelle? Which is why you weren't glued to your to the live stream of the, the Greens launch. How about you, Ben? Were you watching closely? Fortunately, I'm very lonely. Um, <laughs> so I have been keeping a, a, a real-time eye on developments in the campaign. Um, yeah, the manifesto, which is the first comprehensive, you know, sort of election manifesto that the Greens have produced. So in the past, they've, just like other parties, they've had these kind of um, sprawling collections of remits held together in, you know, scrolls and ring binders of all the sort of, uh, th- you know, notions that their members have passed over time. This is the first time they've come out with, you know, a comprehensive manifesto for the election on each policy issue. And that that's a signal that they've done a bit of learning from New Zealand first 
in the past, what the Greens have done is they've had a couple of memorandum of understanding in the past with governments, and they had the confidence and supply agreement this time. And the Greens have largely been happy to do their negotiation post-election, get five or six or 20, in this case, of varying specificity promises from the government. And then in exchange, they just sort of go with the the government's program. It's always been a Labour government. Well, actually, no, sorry, they did sign, sign an MOU with the key government as well, which they didn't go along with. They just got their negotiated, negotiated policies. And this is an indication that, you know, they are looking to be in government with Labour without New Zealand first on the current dismal sort of 2% polling. And they want to play a part in each decision that is made uh, you know, as the government goes through its three-year term, rather than just being happy with their, you know, negotiated list in the month after the election. Um, so that, that's a sort of positive development for Green supporters in terms of showing a bit more sort of stiffening of the spine. Um, you know, there is a perception, I think, not least amongst their members, that the Greens have have been kind of a soft touch for Labour, that they get kind of pushed around by Ardern and and most obviously by New Zealand First. New Zealand First call the shots on which policies go through. They're the handbrake. The Greens are just sort of, you know, the... The, 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 the CRC. The support of best friend that you can always retreat to after your prom date's ditched you. No, and, I, need a, I need a metaphor. If the, the handbrake is the New Zealand First <laughs> to the handbrake, then whatever... What are the Greens in terms of they like air in the tires or uh, one of those kind of one of the, like a like uh, one of those sort of things that you buttons that you push that goes in the car? Uh, I th- I, th- I think the Greens the Greens are just your f- the the Greens are the people who drive Labour around. The Greens are the people that are doing can electric, just call up and go, "Hey, could you give me engine. a lift?" <laughs> oh yeah, okay. Mm. Mm. Um, They're the hybrid car. Yeah, we'll, we'll work on this. Now the, the, <laughs> we'll work on this, listeners. The, the, the problem for the Greens here is that on the current polling, Labour won't need them at all. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. just just as they've found you, their mojo. I mean, they've uh, been they've been they've been very polite, uh, and I think I mean I'm I'm surprised by this, and I've talked to, uh, to talked to a few people who used to be involved in the Green Party, and they're surprised, they're sort of frustrated by compared to previous. Green parties, uh, they've been reasonably, with some exceptions, reasonably polite. Like, for example, the the deal that was signed between the Labour and the Green Party include included a pledge, and this is a quote, to overhaul the welfare system, which manifestly has not happened. Yeah. And if you had something that was as high priority in the New Zealand First deal with the Labour Party, by God, you would have heard about it. Um, o- overhaul subsidies for rich horse breeders, <laughs> right? Yes, th- that's right. Or, or something. <laughs> overhaul right the shadowy <laughs> relationships right, right, with Russia, right. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and they've they've been kind of you know there's clearly a nervousness that came out of what happened last time round. Um, five or six percent steady as she goes, and I guess the the hope for the Greens, Annabelle, is that. The people in the Labour Party who err towards the, the the left side will now look at a poll that says sixty percent and go, "Okay, I can move. I can safely move my vote to the Green Party." I totally agree. And mm. push it in that direction. Mm. Um, 
do you think that'll happen? Yeah, I do. Th- I do think that'll happen. And I hear what you said last week, Ben, about um, how you thought that um, Jacinda Ardern's international popularity would bleed support um, from the Greens. But I actually think that um, yeah, the the far left um, will see how well Labour is polling and feel, like you said, Toby, that they can fa- um, safely deposit their um, their vote with. The Greens and not um, and not risk uh, bringing in a national coalition. Um, I think you know it's an interesting point that one about um, overhauling the welfare system, and I think that's probably part of the Greens' overall problem is that um, f- for understandable reasons they've kind of moved away from the Jeanette Fitzsimmons brand of, of, of green politics, which was very much about um, local conservation efforts. And they've moved more and more into social justice, you know, issues around, you know, inequity and how we treat our beneficiaries and all of that stuff. And I think as a result, they have somewhat narrowed their supporter base and mm. that, you know, uh, um, I guess the blue greens, the blue green um, vote, and I think um, although you know we hear talk about um, climate change and those sort of big global issues, um, you know discussions around things like hectares, dolphin, and and conservation projects, all of that sort of stuff is is has sort of been lost in that conversation, and that's an important part of the green. DNA and probably something that they need to tap back into. One other disadvantage they have is that they were probably a bit ahead of their time. So, you know, once the once the Zero Carbon Act was passed, well, all parties locked that in as part of their brand. Uh, so it makes it harder then for the Greens to sort of say, well, we are doing something about climate change. Yeah, they, they passed the bill or the act, which all the other parties came on board for. And you see it with the environment as well. So, for instance, the Greens, one of their big uh, announcements last week was their climate change policy, where they were talking about, um, uh, you know, ba- uh, replacing all of the industrial boilers in New Zealand, which use a lot of coal, uh, with electrical boilers. And then over the weekend, Megan Woods, the Minister of Energy, announced $70 million to electrify industrial boilers in uh, in uh, the South Island, you know, as one of the consequences of TY um, closing. So, you know, they, they do find themselves, you know, just, just as just as the wildlife of the earth, uh, you know, the animals that live in wild places find themselves increasingly displaced by urbanisation and the creep of humanity, so the Greens find themselves displaced from their ordinary uh, kind of environmental policy areas by they, this Labour government. Um, they also There was also a hint, I think, on the weekend in some interviews, Madame Davidson in particular was po- pointing at issues of trust, which does seem like some territory that they can claim when you consider that just about every the three biggest parties in Parliament are all either under investigation or uh, being charged or linked to uh, serious fraud office investigations relating to donations. Um, uh, there and there are all sorts of you know questions about behaviour as well, some of which we've covered. And the Greens have, you know, um, 
you know, they're living up to their sort of goody two shoes <laughs> um, <laughs> reputation. But that's that's I mean that's that's something, isn't it? That they can genuinely hold their heads up high from that point of view. Um, the as dirty as it gets in the greens is like Rose Matafio and and Golras having oh, like yeah, Twitter yeah. spat yeah, over yeah. Guy Williams. Yeah, the Auckland comedy scene. Girl fight. Um, mm. the, the the there's also been. A little bit of um, a little bit of spiky action with James Shaw having a go at Winston Peters, you know, in his sort of relatively polite fashion, um, uh, and that brings me neatly to Winston Peters, who in this poll that we're talking about two percent. I mean, two percent. You know, we all. It's one of the cliches of New Zealand recent politics that New Zealand first outperformed their polls that they campaign well. That there's stuff that happens off the radar, but. We've seen in the last week Winston Peters use parliamentary privilege to kind of, uh, what did he do, throw a bazooka into uh, into, <laughs> into a long-running uh, spat which has ended up being through court and out of court relating, relating to the leak of his superannuation details in the lead-up to the last election. This time he named Rachel Morton and David Seymour and John Bishop, Chris Bishop's father, and just this kind of it was a it was a bit like what's that that um, that meme with the guy with the wall behind him and all the it was very Illuminati strings, yeah, just this incredible kind of serious fraud office wiring diagram of yeah. You know, Panama Papers style dotted lines between all of these very disparate, unconnected people. It's getting to the point that if you haven't yet been named by Winston Peters as somehow involved in the terrible criminal enterprise of leaking his super details, you're you're no one at all. I mean, look, he was he was ordered to pay three hundred and twenty thousand dollars court costs for his last case, in which he alleged about a dozen people were involved in leaking his super details. Why not have another go? Why, you know, I I get the feeling that he only just discovered that Rachel Morden and David Seymour used to be in a relationship. Rachel Morden used to be the press secretary for Paula Bennett um, at, at the time, um, and she that went on to to be Simon Bridges' press secretary, and now is somebody who's just a citizen. And so, you know, uh, it's quite a big thing to be named under privilege like that and she was very clear in her denying that she had anything to do with it at all as was David Seymour but parliamentary privilege is quite a sacred thing and you wonder whether or not it's being used for uh, sort of naked attention seeking purposes. Well as a as a journalist I believe in the for want of a better word like the tapu nature of protecting your sources, which is, you know, um, our right as journalists. And sometimes you receive information and you run a story and um, you think it's in the public interest, but in retrospect, the, the public interest value is questionable. Um, but nonetheless, you still have the right to protect your sources who bought you who brought you that story. And if I am to believe in it, then I also have to respect that um, it is a politician's right to use parliamentary privilege. Um, whether or not it's in the public interest, like journalism, is sometimes questionable. But I think that um, he has the right to do it. And there's, and there's, um, there's you know, 
a, a path of re recourse that um, other people are able to take. So there's nothing to prevent David Seymour from referring him to the Privileges Committee or Chris Bishop for that matter. So um, if, the, if the people he named are, um, are innocent of the allegations, that's a real shame and I would imagine that David Seymour will be you know, trying to push uh, uh, push that into the Privileges Committee to question it. But having said that, someone still leaked Winston Peters' private information and he has a right to know who that is and whether or not that story was in the public interest, in my, in my opinion, is highly questionable. Well, to me, it appeared to just be a political smear campaign. The mother of all scandals, as it was famously described um, at the, the mother time. of all bazookas. The, the mother of all bazookas. And, and uh, the, one of the interesting things about it, <coughs> and correct me if, if I'm wrong, but the suggestion seems to be that the <coughs> people who ran, ran the story may not even know from whom it came, which I think is an interesting journalistic question um, which has no simple answer but given it came from an anonymous call and mm. then I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about the bit after that to be honest with you but as a journalist one of the things that you take into consideration when uh, applying the public interest test is from whom the information came mm. and whose agenda is being served mm. and it is interrogating the you, motives <coughs> of your yes, of your source yes, yes and and if we think about the case of the uh, individuals who were in in quarantine, the po positive COVID-19 people, which was leaked by Michelle Bogue for nakedly political purposes to Hamish Walker, remember him. I don't think, I mean, no journalist published any of that and that didn't involve a, a politician's details. So there are obviously differences, but we're still talking about private, private mm. details, right? Mm. And, pro and pro um, public interest do does trump privacy in a court of law but you have to prove that the public interest and you know that's still up for debate really isn't it yeah I think there's a couple of things there I think that the motive is really irrelevant uh, in most cases if there's a public interest in releasing the information it doesn't matter whether the person has good or bad motivations in giving you the information I disagree very, I think very, it's part of, part of the very test very few very few sources have good motivations that I disagree. aren't at all self-serving um, what about whistleblowers Ben yeah, that's whistleblowers are often people who are poorly think they treated have good in their jobs. But you can have good intentions mixed with selfish intentions. But that yeah. doesn't make it inherently bad. I don't think any of them are inherently bad. Mm. I, I think that, you know, leaks of the lifeblood of democracy, that it's good to have information out there in most cases. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think that motive is particularly, just like in criminal law, I don't think motive. Is, is necessarily a relevant consideration. doesn't matter why you kill somebody. doesn't matter why you leak personal information. The um, I thought establishing motive was an important part of... No, only in TV shows. Oh. Yeah, it's not a legal test. So, the, but, but the other thing is, look, I, I agree. I don't think there was any public interest in, in, in... Well, there may have been some public interest in the fact that the guy who wanted to be Deputy Prime Minister couldn't fill out forms correctly. But... The f I don't think the information should have been leaked. The information, the, the fault there came from this kind of Stasi-like network of public servants who all had the information kicked up the chain to themselves and then started sharing it amongst themselves. The current State Services Commissioner, Peter Hughes, um, 
the then head of DIA, uh, sorry, MSD, Brendan Boyle, who were all kind of just retailing this information around basically as court gossip. You know, they they say that there was very important no surprises, no surprises issues at stake, but of course there weren't. This was just them trying to curry favour and impress their ministers. At that point, as soon as it reached a political level, of course it was going to leak somehow. None of this changes the fact that oh, I actually think there should have been much harsher repercussions on those civil servants, and they they did come in for some quite oblique uh, but but clear criticism in the court case about their handling under no surprises. None of this changes the fact that you know Winston Peters has the right to wildly accuse people in Parliament under privilege, but he also has the right to be judged as a foolish old man, you know, touting it. To, tilting at windmills, swinging wildly in a pub car park, you know, photoshopped less as a boxer by the bad boys of Brexit meeting David Seymour in the ring and more just sort of swinging wildly at a fe- at a lamppost after he's been kicked out so of the bar. So glad we got the bad boys of Brexit. Just the, I sort of feel like they, they should we should give them a shout-out every time because you mentioned the lifeblood of democracy before, Ben, and what, uh, 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 what, what better... Um, symbolise the lifeblood of democracy and the bad boys of Brexit. They are, we're just blessed to have them involved in our politics. Very quickly before we go, um, on Sunday, another um, uh, example of the lifeblood of democracy was witnessed at the Logan Campbell Centre in Auckland. More than a 1,000 people. Jamie Lee Ross had uh, consciously coupled with the his advance party with the New Zealand Public Party and... Uh, Billy Te Kahika, who has built quite a substantial following, mostly online and mostly appealing to conspiracy theories around 5G, around anti-vax, uh, and around the COVID. man-made uh, bio-weapon that is COVID-19. Um, is this just a sideshow, Annabelle, or is there a is there a way in which this this could be like I mean Alex Bray, who wrote about this, who is who is who is fascinated by minor parties, reckons that there is a possibility. Maybe it's still a, it might it might still be an outside possibility that there is a kind of groundswell happening off the radar of mainstream politics that could surprise us in the weeks to come. There's absolutely zero chance that Billy TK is going to win um, Te Tai Tokido, and frankly. Jamie Lee Ross is a sideshow. Um, but what's interesting about um, Billy TK Jr. is that he is a, a, a charismatic, um, articulate, um, strong communicator who has tapped into a part of the um, <coughs> Māori demographic who, you know, are suspicious of... Actually, it's something that um, Alice has written about already in terms of why Māori are susceptible to... On the spin-off to Yeah, 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 um, to, you know, 5G conspiracies. And, you know, that's about um, uh, people who have been screwed over by the state, essentially, who become deeply suspicious of the state's motives. And I think that he has has, uh, tapped into it um, I, I think, um, you know, he has a strong social media following. 
Is it going to translate to seats in Parliament? Absolutely not. Is it going to hurt Labour? No, if anything, they'll probably, um, he'll probably bleed um, what's left over of the Māori Party slash Mana Party vote. So I don't think it poses a major political threat, but it's interesting. And it's something to keep an eye out on because I think there is a growing sense of, you know, resentment in that community. Ben? Yeah, I don't think it's material to this election. Um, It is material to social cohesion and effective public health measures uh, after the election and in our near future. Um, Often there's been a tendency to write off anti-vax conspiracists, you know, flat earthers, whatever, as middle-class white people with too much time on their hands who go down these internet rabbit holes. That's certainly kind of how it started. Um, But once something is online, it's not quarantined, you know, middle-class manias are not quarantined to the idle, stupid rich once uh, they're out on the internet. And they can actually have an extremely negative impact on vulnerable communities in terms of um, destroying trust and things like vaccination. Vaccination rates have fallen considerably in the last five years, coinciding pretty much with all of this conspiracism online. Uh, obviously, with COVID, you know, our greatest best hope for resuming something akin to a normal world is a COVID vaccine. The last thing we want is people, particularly people who live in crowded circumstances, who have large families, who, you know to be suspicious of vaccines. Um, I mean, it's an incredibly negative development, unbelievably irresponsible of the quizzling, treacherous idiot Jamie Lee Ross to align himself with this. Um, You know, I think it was about about two years ago, he had his, you know, massive conflagration in, in Parliament. And at that point, he probably thought he had nothing left to lose. But... In public life, there's no floor. There's just a pit that falls forever. And Jamie Lee Ross is just, you know, tumbling towards the centre of the earth. Riding a drill into the earth's core. Yeah. Um, just, you know, the, the fact that somebody like him could provide more of a platform in the media, on Radio New Zealand, in mainstream media, for lunatic ideas like this... Um, you know, I, I honestly don't know how that guy can live with himself or look at himself in the mirror. On that upbeat note, we will wind this episode of Gone by Lunchtime up. Thank you very much to producer Jane Yee. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred podcast provider. You can leave us a glowing review if you like. And, you know, share the, share the joy. Um, write it down on the internet. Spray it on a wall. Do what you need to do. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Annabelle. I'm Toby. Bye. Kia ora e te iwi. Te Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.